0: I do want to hear your story of how you got into AI. Like, I, I didn't oh, ask yeah. that. Like, what, what, I mean, how old are you? First, I'm 20. Or, I'm 20. You're 20 years old? Jesus. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you're so young. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, so what, um, yeah, what, yeah. what, what, how'd it happen? Imagine. Alex, so excited to have you on the Imagine AI podcast. Thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm super excited about this podcast and to kind of see what you build out of it. So I'm you know honored to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, for reference for our listeners, Alex and I met at the Balaji's Network State Conference in Amsterdam yeah, a October thirtieth. That's right. Yeah. So almost two months ago. Yeah. And it was an insane event in Amsterdam along some giant canal in a convention center. And they had like Balaji had like forty speakers come through. And maybe a fourth of them were pre-recorded that he had interviewed and spoke to the audience. But otherwise, like he got a lot of uh, talent in there. And it was really interesting to hear. And, and just kind of like the, you know, the network state and all these different facets of what it takes to build a real network state from the social side of it to the in like the physical, like, where do you actually build the network state? How does and it then secu- Yeah. Yeah security uh, issues around it and a thousand people came and it was just like such a cool crowd and you yeah, were one of the cool yeah. people met there. I was uh, so happy I met you there.
1: No, yeah, it was, it was cool. It was a ton of really interesting people. It definitely drew a, you know, partially a crowd that I kind of didn't expect, right? Like it's like, you know, I knew it was going to kind of bring the crypto crowd, but there was a lot of people that had, you know, a lot of interesting ideas in kind of adjacent areas, you know, and that was pretty cool to see and pretty exciting to see a bunch of people, you know, thinking about the world in, in new ways.
0: So yeah, definitely. At that time, I didn't really, like I knew that maybe 20 VC, I'd be leaving there eventually and kind of wanted to start my own thing. And the cool opportunity that offered to me is to run the Imagine AI Live conference in Las Vegas, which is three months from now. And we're getting, it's me and two other co-founders, one main co-founder, and he kind of like corraled me in to help with social media and to get the word out the goal of it is to get all of the the top ai creators so we've got lots of um people you've probably seen on twitter like linus eckenstam and rowan chung rowan chung
1: yeah i've seen him he has a pretty good updates oftentimes he does a good job yeah so he's like
0: Yeah. yeah he's hopefully gonna come it's not for sure but he's like in partnership with us and then um It's really focused on like businesses, like what can businesses do to implement AI to help streamline things and to get more productive. And we're trying to like get a list of just power tools that like, hey, you know, if you use this and this is how to use it, it's going to help you out. So really excited about that. And it's at the Fontainebleau Hotel, new brand new hotel. And uh, the founder was just there this week and sending me pictures and it looks Insane. Like the casino, the casino hall looks like something out of Star Trek, just like this kind of like, awesome, like futuristic yet retro at the same time. It's crazy. So that's, you know, that's what the niche of this podcast is too, is trying to talk with, you know, there's so much happening in the AI space every day and it just gets more and more. It's hard to pay attention to. And I'm trying to talk to leading creators and leading builders in the AI space. And I know you're one of them. You told me that you were working on an AI startup. And can you first just kind of tell us what it is you're working on and what the goal is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, right, I guess where we're starting is uh, we're building a tool for investors in the commercial real estate space. or Well, investors and agents and brokers. And the way that we're building it is, is, you know, a lot of agents, the way that they understand the market today is by, you know, Working with a bunch of different investors, um, helping them find properties that kind of fit their investment goals. By working with a ton of different investors, they kind of know what everyone wants and what they think about and what they care about, what their investment goals are, how they think about you know a good property to buy and how they think about a, maybe a bad deal. And what they can do is basically by talking with all of these people, they can get a good idea for you know what the market is doing. And then they can also say, okay, hey, my buddy, John, you know, has this property he wants to sell. I know my other buddy, James, you know, is in the market for something like that. And they can kind of make that connection and broker a deal. Now, the issue that the best agents have is they generally want to work with, you know, they have tons of people that want to work with them because they have this massive network of other people that, you know, either buy or sell properties from them. And the more people that they interact with, the better, you know, the more properties they have access to, the better they understand the market. But the issue is, is a good agent really only has so many hours in a day. So what ends up happening is they don't really talk to the investors that they don't think are serious on making a transaction. What that kind of leads to is, you know, an agent that maybe has, you know, tens of thousands of investors. That want to work with them they only really talk with consistently maybe about 10 percent of them so what we do is basically take all of the information that that agent knows all of the data that they have on the market and put that into an ai that they can send out to those tens of thousands of investors that would normally be on their mailing list when they get a new property they send out you know when they have a new listing they send a property to all of their you know people in their mailing list they can send this ai out to them And then what we do for the agents is based on the conversations that this AI has with the investors, um, we can kind of tell the agents, you know, which investors are really serious and which investors are you know, interested in buying or interested in certain properties or whether that's buying or selling. And the idea is we kind of want to solve this scaling problem for them. You know, they have all this information on the market. Everyone wants to work with them, but they kind of can't work with everybody. So what we're going to do is kind of take that, you know, what an investor would normally look for from an agent, put that in an AI so that the investor gets the value that they're looking for. And then when the investor starts to, you know, get serious about making a transaction, rather than just kind of keeping tabs on the market, we can give that to the agent and the agent can kind of take it the rest of the way and close the deal. So that that's kind of what we're building. And our goal is to kind of, you know, give every investor access to, you know, the best agents in the world, the people that understand the market the best, the people that have the best networks, the people that have access to the most, uh, you know, deals and opportunities for them, and then allow the agent to kind of take more advantage of what they've kind of built and the network they've built without having to kind of lose these deals that they would normally lose because they just have a scaling issue, right? They can't talk with everybody. And if they try and talk with everybody, they're going to end up talking to a bunch of people that frankly may kind of waste their time, right? And yeah, that, that's kind of our goal is to kind of give the opportunity for investors to be able to have that full-time 24-7 access in the same way that they'd normally talk to an agent. They can talk to an AI. And then when they're serious, we'll put them in touch with the agent and you know, the agent will take it the rest of the way.
0: Okay, a lot to unpack there. Thank you for that. What kind of real estate are we talking about here?
1: Yeah, so we're talking about commercial real estate.
0: So these are, these are investors that are looking to invest in commercial real estate and these are real estate agents that represent owners of commercial real estate.
1: Yeah, so, so it's really agents and kind of brokers is maybe the, the best way to think about it. Today, you know, the way that commercial property would get traded is you own the property and you say, hey, I want to sell this, or I'm trying to figure out if I should sell this. And then what you would go do is go call an agent who kind of helps broker these properties. And that agent's going to kind of be able to give you the market insight and, you know, help you kind of understand, okay, is this a good time to trade this property? Is this a good time to sell this property? Is there another market that I should think about buying into? Um, a lot of investors have what's called a 1031 exchange. So that means if they sell a property, they have a certain amount of time that they can buy a new property and basically forego the taxes in that time period for you know getting any sort of gains on that property. So you know, if you're an investor or an owner of a property, you kind of want to have an understanding of what's going on in the market today to kind of help you determine what decisions do I need to make, right? Uh, mm-hmm. so, so our goal is to basically when you're just kind of keeping tabs on the market and when you're just kind of thinking, okay, well, I just, I'm not really necessarily ready to make a transaction. I just need to know what's going on. Um, so I can determine if I should make a transaction. We're going to kind of help do that for you when you would normally kind of go to an agent or a broker that would kind of do that for you, mm-hmm. uh, which basically allows the agent or the broker just to focus on the the investors or the owners that are actually ready to make a transaction, actually ready to sell, mm-hmm. actually ready to buy. So that's kind of what our goal is and where our place in, in all of this is right now.
0: So what's wrong with the way commercial real estate is done and traded today?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. If you're an investor, it kind of goes back to that same problem, right? Like you want to understand what the market is doing, and you can go and read things online, but really the best way to understand especially a local market is by talking to a, you know, an agent or a broker that that works specifically in that local market. And the reason that they have the best information is because they're the ones that are making the trade. They're the ones that know a property across the street from your property six months ago sold for this price. And a property, you know, a few streets down from your property sold for this price. And those properties are seen as very similar to your property because everyone that I talk to that is looking for a property like this, these are the three things that they care about, right? So mm-hmm. by knowing what generally what the market cares about, what people are thinking about, and then also by knowing you know what did those things end up selling for, they're able to give you an insight on what's going on in the market that you wouldn't be able to just get from like uh, watching someone on CNBC talk about the commercial real estate market as a whole, right? It kind of has this problem of localization matters a lot, and then for someone to really understand the local market trends, you really need to be kind of boots on the ground, and the people that get the closest experience of that is the agents and the brokers. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens is the investors they, you know, they have to talk to an agent or a broker. Um, the agents or the brokers, they only want to talk to investors that are ready to make a transaction, or at least the best ones do, because that's how they make money. They make six percent. And generally they'll split it with a brokerage at, at some percentage split, you know, depending on kind of how they've set up their their situation. Or if there's a buyer and a seller agent, they kind of split that transaction fee mm-hmm. uh, in in certain ways. So there's all sorts of ways that could that could end up happening. But um, at the end of the day, if you're an investor, you want to understand what's going on in the market to know what decisions you need to make. If you're an agent, you want to talk to as many investors as possible that are ready to make a decision so you can, first off, make money and second off, further develop your understanding of the local market at each point in time.
0: Great. So the the problem would be that the amount of information that you get by just going to one agent is really limited to that agent and maybe his connection of agents, but and when the, when the investor goes to these agents, are they signing a contract right away, typically? or no.
1: is it- Oftentimes, a lot of investors will have an agent or a broker, a few agents or brokers that they generally work with. Ideally, you know, an agent's about as good as how many transactions they make, right? Because, you know, and there's a lot of other ways to look at it. But the way that I see it is every time you make a transaction, you get another data point on what the market is doing and what people care about. Right. So mm-hmm. so if you understand what is motivating people to sell right now, what is motivating people to buy right now, you kind of understand, you know, what are the the pieces in the market that matter, right? At least in this local area. Right. So, you know, if you're an investor to make your decision, you want to know, you want to talk to the person who kind of understands that really, really well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's what these agents kind of are able to kind of build. The best ones do more deals, right? And if you do more deals, you kind of have a broader view or a larger view on a local market.
0: I suppose that each agent, like it's their network of, you know, it's all these, the nodes that they're personally doing, but all their, their network of personal connections and knowing what nodes they're making as far as transactions go. And so yeah. how is AI going to solve this? Like, how is your company going to solve this problem?
1: Yeah. So, so if you're an agent, all you have to do is you kind of have all of this data of all the deals that you've made and all the conversations you've had with investors. You, you have an understanding of the market. You basically just put that in, into your version of our AI, right? And then you send that out to your investors. And then our AI, you can literally have a conversation with. You can say, you know, uh, what's the market like in Houston? And it'll tell you what the market is like in Houston. Okay, well, you know, what are rental rates right now in Houston? Can you give me an idea of, you know, how much can I get a tenant to pay to be in Houston, right? To be in a a shopping center in Houston right now. And it's gonna say, okay, well, tell me a little bit about the shopping center you're talking about. Is it a community center? Is it this? Is it that? Right? And it's gonna kind of get a good idea of, okay, well, your shopping center is like this. Well, let me look at similar shopping centers that have similar characteristics and say, okay, all right, well, if these shopping centers are, you know, maybe doing, you know, $17 per square foot then you can probably, you know, move a tenant into your shopping center at $16, 17 $18 per square foot, right? And obviously mm-hmm. that changes a little bit because every property is kind of fundamentally unique, but you can kind of do a decent job of understanding, okay, what? Well, well, a tenant is looking for maybe a KFC wants to be on a busy highway, right? So they're going to pay more for that space than a grocery store would pay, right? So then you're going to say, okay, well, let me find other situations that KFCs or, you know, fast food chains are on busy highways, how much are they paying to be there, right? And that's about how much you can go and charge that KFC tenant to be in your property next to a busy highway, right? And mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that an agent would know and a broker would know and have a good insight on. And that's something that an investor would want to know to kind of be able to determine, okay, how much of a return can I get on this property? And you know, we're going to just be able to take what that agent knows and you know, provide that to their investors 24-7, 365 days a year in a way that they're used to, right? Just having a conversation, and that, yeah. that's kind of what we do.
0: It sounds like a lot of like buy-in, like people are giving you the data that makes your startup and the information that you have like more valuable. And the more people that do it, it becomes this network effect thing where you've got more data to pull from and becomes stronger, and more people want to use it to give it their data. Is that yeah.
1: So today, like if an agent uses our platform, they have their own version of their AI, right? So, so their AI is only a reflection of their data. What we do do is we, there is some amount of public data that we do gather. And this is just to kind of have like a common grounding across something to superimpose what the agent gives us and, you know, build on top of that. But that's really just property data, data like this property exists this is the address this is you know the zip code this is the county right so then if an mm-hmm. agent says okay well that property last time I did a deal on that property it sold for this amount we don't have to ask for okay what's the address what's this what's that right we only have to this yeah. small anyways yeah so so the agent will give us their data but what we're not you know what we do is when they send that out to their investors that's the data that the investors have access to they don't have access to data from another agent's version of the AI Right. It's a common representation of it's a representation of the agent that they would normally call to get that information rather than some sort of common representation across agents. And the reason that we do that is because that that is very valuable to the agent.
0: Yeah,
1: sure. You know, there's the kind of uh, maybe oil of commercial real estate, or at least, you know, one of the things that's very valuable in commercial real estate is what's called a sale comparable, which is, you know, how much did this price, you know, how much did this uh, property sell for? So what we try and do is just uh, you know make sure that when an agent gives us that data, another agent's not just gonna hop on and you know, get that data too. At least not right now. So so that's that's so, kinda
0: question. So I'm aware of the MLS and is that for commercial real estate as well, or is that it, separate? They have MLSs for and, both. And what business. is the MLS? What is MLS?
1: MLS is just like, a, if you were just think about Zillow, right? There, there's yeah. just like one that uh, real estate agents have that other people can't access, right? So so if you're like in Dallas area or in Miami or in, I don't know how it works overseas, but if you know, you're in a certain area, then there's an MLS in Miami, right? And then if you're a real estate agent in Florida, then you would have access to the MLS in Miami, right? Now, there is something that's called a non-disclosure state. So- I think there's 13 out of the 50 states are what's called non-disclosure states. And what that means is that you don't have to disclose how much a property sold for. And the reason that you don't have to disclose it is because I think the reason that law exists is because there's property tax, right? And, you know, you don't want your property tax going up because the sale price was really, really high, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you'd rather just have it be on the appraised value. So I think especially in big markets, um, sale prices can be a little bit more volatile, when compared to the appraisal value, which is like what, it, you know, someone will come out to your property and say, this is what it's worth. The sale price is generally not always completely the same, especially in larger markets where there's significantly more affected by larger trends rather than just like what's going on in the immediate local market.
0: And so commercial real estate
1: isn't on MLS? I think there is an MLS for commercial real estate. Um, I think in non-disclosure states, the sale price isn't necessarily there. Oh, okay. Um, Okay. So, yeah. And, and you can see there's like a lot of companies out there that their entire job, what they do entirely is aggregate sale comps, right? Or how much property mm-hmm. sold for. Um, there's a company called CompStack, which their business model is basically like, hey, if, if you give us, you know, if you show me yours, I'll show you mine, right? If you give us a sale comp, we'll show you 10. Right. And then they kind of develop that network effect that you kind of referred to previously. It's like, okay, well, if I give you my data, I'll get more data
0: back. And then if a lot of people do that, then you kind of have something that's valuable. But And so what's going to be, what's your company's special sauce going to be? Like MLS and these other companies you just mentioned that like focus on commercial real estate, trying to gather the same information you're trying to gather.
1: Yeah. For us, we just partner with the agent, Right. The agent is the person that has the data. And then we're just going to say, you know, hey, we can help you make more deals by being able to cast a wider net across your investors and save you time by not having to have very basic conversations that you have over and over again, and only have the conversations that are going to lead to a deal. Right? You know, you don't want to, uh, if you were to answer every phone call that said, hey, you know, I just need rental rates in Houston, I don't really care about anything else right? Well, then you don't really get as an agent very much value from that phone call outside of a, an investor saying, okay, this agent constantly works with me. They, you know, they, I trust them. They, they're giving me honest information and you're building a relationship with them. But after you get to a certain point, you kind of already have those relationships. And if you want to continue to scale up you need something that can kind of be in front of you that can still give that value to the investor, just like you would have done it, you know, it can still give them give you the, the investor the rental rates or what is the the cap rate, you know, the average asking mm-hmm. cap or what is the average sale cap in in Houston or Dallas or whatever area you care about that the agent, you know, kind of makes trades in. We're just going to kind of be that net in front of the agent. And then what we're going to be able to do is, okay, when people go to that and say, well, I'm interested in this, and I, and I think this is interesting, and I'm looking for this, and I'm looking for that, um, we can kind of distill that information and really give an agent a very pointed view of, okay, this person is very, very interested in this property, and here's why. And this is why we think okay. that would be ready to make a deal, right? So yeah, then the agent, I, All right, now yeah. I didn't have to talk to him all the 15 times to get that. I just have to talk to him now that he's ready to make a
0: deal. For sure. So this is like an AI service like a service that the providing the agent, commercial real estate agent that they're buying to help streamline their processes and make life easier for them so they can access and talk with more investors. Yes. And for investors too, it seems like if they know that, you know, they can come and get questions easily and kind of hassle-free that it would be you know beneficial to them as well.
1: Yeah. Exactly. They don't have to call an agent and then call them three or four times, hope that they answer one of them, right? They can just go to this platform and, you know, even arguably get a more accurate real-time answer because every single time you ask for rental rates, we're going to go and recalculate exactly what the new rental rates are at point in time, right? Wow. Um, so cool. you're going to get super up-to-date real-time answers in the, in the same way that you would normally get them just through having a conversation
0: like you and I are right now. Right. So what's the company's name? Said- uh, it's,
1: called, it's called Theus. So, uh, it's like uh, we took Prometheus and, and we cut off the Promi and the yes. kind of intuition behind it is, yeah, we, we want to kind of give the, the power of, you know, the ability to kind of scale yourself to everybody, which I think is kind of a larger trend that as AI becomes more, you know, widespread and, you know, we see AIs that are even embodied in the physical world. A single individual will have just as much capability for impact on the world that, you know, normally would be only possible for massive companies or, you know, governments or nation states, right? And the idea is that, you know, a single individual could command, you know, millions of AI agents on their behalf and have the same degree of impact as a person commanding, you know, a million other people, right? And, and, you know, we're just kind of, uh, we're just getting in line with that that trend or maybe my kind of belief around that trend. And, you know, we're just uh, taking the first steps into that.
0: Oh man, that's, I got goosebumps just hearing that the power of AI to just help multiply your impact and what you can do in this world and the and the time we have in it, you know, it's yeah. it's incredible. I do want to hear your story of how you got into AI. Like, I, I didn't oh, ask yeah. that. Like, what, what, I mean, how old are you? First, I'm 20. Or, I'm 20. You're 20 years old? Jesus. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you're so young. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, so what, um, yeah, what, what, what? How'd it happen?
1: When I was 15 years old, I, uh, my, all my buddies were working at Chick-fil-A and I wanted to get a job with them. I was like, you know, I, I was like 15 years old. I wanted to get a job. I was excited about, you know, making money and uh, I wanted to get a job with them. So I was like, dad, I'm going to go get a job at Chick-fil-A. He was like, uh, how much are they going to pay you? I was like, I don't know, like eight bucks an hour. You know, it wasn't that much, but uh, he was like, you know, I'll pay you the same amount to do, to learn something that you're interested in. I was like, okay, well, you know, and my dad and I always used to talk about, you know, what we kind of called exponential technologies, right? The technologies that will change the world, right? And, you know, it's like blockchain and, you know, CRISPR and nuclear energy and, you know, both fission and fusion and quantum computing and AI, right? So I kind of did some like quick research and I just, uh, I chose AI. I was like, that, that sounds super interesting. It sounds like there's, you know, it's on a strong path where it'll be very relevant in the next, you know, 10 years. Unlike maybe like quantum computing, which uh, we, we keep thinking is going to be there, but it's not quite. So, so I chose AI. I took a few courses. I took the, you know, if anyone's in the space, they know the Andrew Ng courses. I took a few of those. And uh, that summer after that, I had started, you know, doing some internships over the summers. And then out of high school, I was uh, hired to work on a sales AI tool company. I worked with them through college. I studied like applied math and physics in college, but I kind of knew I was never going to graduate. I kind of knew I was going to drop out and eventually do my own thing. But yeah, about three semesters into college, I dropped out, worked for that company full time for about six months and then left and started my own company. And that's where I am today. Um, but that's how wow. I got you know started in AI. And um, I, I'm really glad that I did. Uh, I think uh, that was a pretty crucial moment in my life. And I'm glad that my, you know, that my dad kind of gave me the opportunity to focus on something else while still kind of achieving the goal of making money, but also learn something that turns out to be a incredibly valuable skill. (laughs) So yeah,
0: that's, that's kind of my, my story in short. That's amazing. And good on your dad to take that, take that chance and give you that offer. Uh, My dad was an economist and taught me uh, the opportunity cost from an early age and would always give me like, you could do this or we could do this. And you yeah. know, one thing, there's always a, there's always a cost. No such thing as a free lunch. So that's, um, that's a great mental yeah. model to have baked in
1: from an early yeah. age. I mean, that's like, a, yeah. yeah.
0: So, Did, okay. You got to just break it down for me, like really basic. Cause you're talking about like somebody having hundreds, thousands of AI. What is AI?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. But I think, I think it's best explained in like uh, what fundamentally changes about the world. I truly believe that the kind of conditions at which organization between people have like fundamentally changed, right? You know, previously you would get together a large amount of people. Uh, let, let's maybe talk about like the industrial revolution, right? The last 500 years, um, have been defined pretty greatly by the industrial revolution. And what was really special about that time is that you could, uh, by bringing more people to work with you, there was increasing outcomes on that economy or increasing returns on that, on that massive economy of scale, right? You can think of the assembly line, right? the second the assembly line existed you no longer needed a craftsman to make a car you just needed a lot of unskilled labor right and you can make cars at a scale that was previously impossible and then the more you scale up that unskilled labor the more returns you get on that economies of scale so that you know it, was, it actually paid a lot to you know organize in really really large groups and i think that's kind of why we see nation states today i think that kind of has fundamentally changed in the last you know 5 years uh, and, and will continue to fundamentally change in the next 10 is that now a single individual could command only kind of stopped by capital, how much capital they have, could really command tens of thousands or millions or just you know an arbitrarily large number of AIs to basically do the same thing, right? And you can see this already with web agents, right? Like one of the things that we're doing to gather all this public data about properties and stuff, which is really kind of you know not easy or wasn't easy before, all of this data is on different county websites organized in completely different ways. So if you were to, in software 1.0 kind of conditions, try and, you know, gather that data, you'd have to build a web scraper for every single county website. Now you don't have to do that because you could just have a single language model agent that has the capability to understand the website, understand, you know, the fields of the data, and then cross-reference those fields with different websites who name those fields, you know, or different databases who name those fields differently and say, okay, these two fields are actually really the same thing. And normally you would need a human to kind of create that intuition. Now you can have a, you know, a web agent basically do that for you. I guess maybe the, the larger point is that, you know, today on the internet, you can have a ton of AI agents that do the tasks of that normally you would need a ton of people for. And then soon enough, we'll see that also happen in the real world where, you know, if, if you're UPS, today you pay a UPS driver, 140000 you know, one hundred to $140,000 a year. Um, they have to sleep, eat. Uh, they have to do a number of things. They have to so, in some way be aligned with the company. Pretty soon we'll have self-driving AIs where UPS can completely cut their costs of human resources by probably a lot by using self-driving AIs and still get efficiency gains out of it. So it will no longer pay for UPS to employ you know tons of people. It'll actually pay more for them to employ less people. And I think what that means is the most capable people of the future will not be limited by how many people they can influence to do something. But more so just be limited by how much capital and maybe as a downstream compute that they have right and I think that's a really important shift because you know I think the conditions of the world that we live in today are really results of high returns on massive economies of scale at least with people um, the conditions of of the world in the next 500 years or I, I hesitate to say you know such a long time period but maybe next 50 years will actually be more closely defined by how much uh, capital you have to basically have impact on the world. Because if you have a lot of capital, you can employ a lot of AIs, right? Um, You don't necessarily
0: need to employ people anymore. Uh, Not as much as you used to. Capital and compute, the two things that are needed to expand yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I still don't get like how you have hundreds of different of AIs, like what, you know, what are all these different companies building and like Facebook's, I heard Mark Zuckerberg said that, you know, he thinks the world's going to, the future going to be just hundreds of different types of AIs and, yeah. and then can you help me like break down, maybe answer that. And then a follow up is like, how do you keep things personalized to you yourself, like in your data, who you are, so that the AI knows that stuff?
1: Yeah. So that's kind of the open question. Okay. Now we know that we have, we can theoretically take a bunch of AIs that do things on your behalf. Okay. But like we, you know, when you have the fundamental tools like language models, you can say, Hey, I want this information from this website. And it's going to be able to go look at, you know, go use a function call to go get the HTML of that website, semantically understand it just like you would and then get you the information. But the big kind of open question is how do you actually orchestrate them? Like, and uh, the level at which you can orchestrate them actually pretty much determines at what level of task do you need to give the AI, right? So today you can't give an AI a task of like build me a business that gives me a million dollars a year, right? That's way too big of a task, right? But you could probably break that task down into a relatively large subset of tasks, and then tell AIs to do that, and then yeah, you could maybe build a business that you know gives you a million dollars a year, right? So the big open question is how do you kind of build AI systems? That can take larger and larger tasks, um, and then break those down into subtasks, assign those to separate, you know, AI agents that have different capabilities, and then and then have those AI agents go do those things. You know, somehow bring them back, have some sort of communication between them. And I think that's where a lot of innovation is going to happen. And there's a lot of opportunity is how do you actually orchestrate that happening? And then, you know, your capability to orchestrate that is your basically your capability to give increasingly complex, you know, tasks with increasing complexity to a single AI system and expect it to actually work. Hmm. But that's kind of the open question. And I think the main components of it are, you know, how do we give AIs the ability to access the same things or similar things that we can access right? You can give an AI, you know, function calling capability, which, you know, opens up a lot of functionality. This function calling capability, you could say, all right, here's a a web scraping function. You put in a URL and then you get the HTML of that website, and then you can do things with that, right? And then maybe you give it the ability to, you know, interact with some sort of uh, SQL database and it can, you know, say, okay, now that I've gotten information from this website, let's just say a, a bunch of properties, right? Or maybe I have a file that I can download from this website that gives me you know, a bunch of properties. Okay, let me download that. Okay, how do I look through that information and actually make sense of it? Well, I need a Python code interpreter to kind of do some exploratory data analysis to actually read that information, right? Okay, now that I've, you know, read and understood the information, let me go look at the SQL database with all the other properties that I have stored in my database. Let me go look at that, re-understand the schema, and then figure out how does the data that I just, you know, did some exploratory data analysis, you know, through a Python interpreter... How did i look at that data and how does that actually relate to the data that we already have and then how do i match those up programmatically okay well let's use the python interpreter again and then match those up programmatically and then go do that right and that can be something as simple as okay this column that's named this is actually this column that's named that in our database right or it can be as something as complex as wait this database doesn't have the addresses That most database have addresses, but this database is missing this column. How do I go and get that information from, you know, another website, right? Is that information Mm -hmm. exists? Is there a way for me to get that? How do I plan on doing that? And then what do I need to access to actually execute on that plan? And that could be, you know, telling other, you know, AI agents with different capabilities to do it, or that could be that AI agent doing it itself. And that's kind of where the complexity lies and, you know, where I think there's a lot of room for innovation and there's going to be a lot of great companies that are built out of these kind of paradigms of how do you, you know, orchestrate these agents? How do they communicate with each other? How do you determine what agent has access to what? And how do you determine, you know, what they're able to do and what they're not able to do? And that's kind of the, that's the open question, but we kind of have the Mm -hmm. tools to make that
0: happen now. What are the, any other big function calls that are predominant in AI today that, are being used. Yeah, I think you you just referenced two.
1: Yeah, I think there's some really exciting ones. I've been continually impressed with how well an AI can write a SQL query. We use a lot of SQL queries in our in our backend, um, and our AI will literally run a SQL query to tell you something like rental rates, and it's just incredible how well it does it. So I think LLMs integrated with SQL databases is an incredible way. You know, incredibly powerful. LLMs integrated with you know web scraping tooling is incredibly powerful. One of the ones that I've kind of looked at more recently is. Uh, Wolfram Alpha, Wolfram uh, API has some really, really interesting um, capabilities. Uh, uh, Stephen Wolfram has built that you know, kind of uh, language to understand the world. And that works really, really well with language models. So that's another really good one. I would say some other interesting ones is going to be language models talking to other language models through function calling giving a task to another agent through a function call. You could you could imagine like a function call that just uh, mm-hmm. says, okay, here's the task and here's what you need to take care of that task. And then that would go and create another agent with that task and then the tools that it needs to do that task. And then, you know, I, I think any, anything that you would normally get through an API, you could just reimagine that as a function call.
0: What is the function of the AI talking to you, like conversing with you? Where I am a little confused about like how that the LLM... Like, what am how I missing there? How does it choose there? between talking yeah.
1: and then how does it choose between function calling? So there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Um, the way that we do it is uh, we give it access to function calls. And then we just, you know, that that's a certain JSON format. And then we say, okay, well, if it's giving us a JSON format, then it's a function call. If it's not giving us a JSON format, then it's just responding, you know, to the user. But you could basically do it in any way you want. You could, you know, say respond to user is a function call, right? You can make everything a function call.
0: Um, mm.
1: you know, I think, and it kind of comes down to, you know, how the model was fine-tuned. Um, if it was fine-tuned to work in a certain way, then you probably want to just take advantage of how it was fine-tuned rather than trying to come up with a whole new paradigm.
0: Mm. So
1: that, that's what I would say is kind of the difference, but you could also have language models that don't talk to people, right? That's kind of maybe a, a key thing that people don't think about as much. Cause they are like, well, chat GPT, I just talked to it. Like what else does it do? Yeah. You could have a language model who just has a task. And then just carries out that task as a series of function calls and, you know, what you could call an internal thought, which is it just generating tokens to itself to kind of further understand something.
0: Okay. And so the last thing I'm trying to unlock in my understanding here is uh, the AI or the LLM, how it can know about you and like what you're about, what you know. One of the things I'm really curious about is AI applied to language learning. And I think there's, you know, there's so much potential to have a AI language tutor. You know, I'm I'm struggling to learn Korean. I've moved to Korea in in 2015. I've done a lot of lessons, done start, starting to stop, and I'm still not great. You know, it's you know, beginner intermediate at best. But if I had an AI tutor that kind of knew what I know, Know what you know, and knew where I was, and then like every day I could kind of talk to it for a certain amount of time, and like Mm -hmm. could just kind of refresh what I already know, and then just push me a little bit further down the road of understanding more. I mean, that's going to be possible. So there's that, but then also like, you know, all these cameras and like the input you're giving it. Right. And that, you know, this is who I talked to. This is, this is what I said to that person, you know, like the rewind app. And there's a few other ones out that just storing everything that, you know, you you turn it on and you say, yes, you can record all this stuff and keep it. And now you're starting to understand my speaking patterns, what, you know, and the knowledge I know, the interactions I'm having, Knowledge I'm gaining, knowledge about other people, and just like storing that where you've got this like, how do you oh, store you know, awesome it? Some memory. AI,
1: like, use it.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, I think that's going to be one of the most exciting use cases for AI is the personal AI. Uh, One day, you know, you'll probably have some sort of hardware device that, you know, listens and sees everything. There's a lot of people doing this today. You know, I think Apple's best positioned for it, but we'll see how it pans out. And yeah, your AI will hear and see everything that you hear and see. And then what it'll do is it'll, you'll go to that AI and you'll say, I want to learn Korean. And then, you know, it's going to say, okay well, you know, you do this a lot and you really, or maybe you know English. Well, let me kind of teach you it in a way that's interesting to you. But, and I think that, you know, that isn't just about language learning, but it's about learning in general, right? Like, how do you learn something? Well, you take something new and then you make relationships between what you already know and that. And then you understand the nature of those relationships, right? So if an AI has all of the context about your life that you have, right, it understands what you already know. And it understands, you know, what you don't know. And then between those two things, it can kind of teach you, all right, this is how you should think about the relationship between these two things. And it'll teach you that in such a native way to what you already know. And um, I think that's a, that's a hugely interesting thing. I mean, it's really interesting because it's a, a more like a, it's a really big question about ourselves, too. Like it kind of brings about this question of English is not a single language. It's just a, a similar representation between different people. Right. Everyone kind of has their own representation of English, none of which is no one who necessarily has the, the right you know, representation of English because there is no right representation of English. It's just this commonly understood set of you know, sound waves. That people kind of commonly put together because we all have a relatively shared experience in in the outer world that we can kind of make relationships between what we're saying and the concepts we're talking about and what's going on in the outer world. And then we develop that over time, and you know, increasingly larger levels of abstraction. Right. What's really interesting is we've built language models that also have that same representation of language or at least a similar enough one where they're capable of interfacing with us. And I think it's a really, really interesting, uh, you know, I think in general, AI, you know, makes us ask a lot of really fundamental questions about what we are and who we are and why we're here. I think uh, we're really getting to the point where like, you know, that's why everyone has an argument over what is AGI, what is not AGI, what should an AI be able to do is because we just don't really have this, you know, fundamental understanding or agreed upon fundamental understanding of what intelligence is, what consciousness is. And it kind of brings up all these sorts of questions. And you can kind of see it in just about every question of AI, even if you say, like, you know, how can it teach you something? It's still like such a fundamental thing that you're actually talking about. And it's uh, super interesting.
0: Man, I'm so enjoying this. It's it's really uh it's really great to hear you go on about these things and just explain, you explain it very succinctly. So bravo on the communication here. Yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. And just how exciting of a time this is. And that's you know why I'm doing this podcast. And it's why I'm trying to focus on the space is just to get a better understanding of it and tell other people that, hey, it's here. It's not going anywhere. It's only going to get more and more relevant, powerful, and more a part of our lives. And the sooner you start paying attention and trying to use it, the more beneficial it will be to you and you'll you'll be on the cutting, cutting edge and have an advantage over other people that are choosing to just kind of block it out and ignore it you know
1: yeah we live in an incredible world and there's all sorts of implications of uh of, of ai and i think uh it's it's going to really fundamentally change the shape of, of businesses and organizations in general right all the way to the you know the nation state level right the returns on on massive levels of organization between people are going to go down so the most effective organizational unit is going to be much smaller, right? It's not going to be hundreds of thousands of people. Like uh, I saw the stat the other day that to get a rocket to the moon, you know, NASA employed 400,000 people. And that's such a tell of the time of like, uh, you know, and at that time, we only had so much computation. So you had to have a lot of people doing a lot of things very manually. Right. And now SpaceX has I don't know how many people that, that they have, but it's definitely not on the magnitude of hundreds of thousands. And they're able, you know, they, they intend on sending something to the moon in 2025. And you know, there's an argument to be made. Well, we already did it, so we already know how to do it. But I would argue, if we still knew how to do it, we'd probably have already done it already. But um, I think, I think the point I'm trying to make is, you know, as technology gets better, a single individual has much more leverage than they did previously um, to do things at a larger scale than they did previously. So that so something that you know took four hundred thousand people before maybe takes a thousand now.
0: Um, takes, uh, just googled From- it. SpaceX has thirteen thousand employees. So thirteen thousand. So much- much smaller. Still pretty big, big, but but
1: not even on the same magnitude. And yeah, and and I'm sure we'll see that go down over time as we see, you know, especially in SpaceX's, you know, situation, AIs that are more embodied in the physical world, which is uh, ironic enough, you know, Elon Musk is also concurrently working on that. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I think Elon Musk is a pretty good example of somebody that's like using capital and compute to try to do as much as he physically can to have impact in the world. You know, it's, Yeah. And he's
1: he's building the tools to increase the leverage that he has with his capital and compute. Right. He's building Mm -hmm. Tesla Optimus. He's building self-driving cars. Right. Not only is he leveraging his capital and compute, but he's also building the tools that will increase the leverage of that capital and compute, uh, which is, you know, an incredibly interesting thing.
0: With like Tesla recording everything that's happening. Wait, what is what is Tesla Optimus?
1: So Tesla Optimus is basically humanoid robots with an AI, you know, as a brain. And the idea there is, uh, well, if we can you know, make a humanoid robot for $10,000 that can do anything that a human can do, but better theoretically with a similar amount of intelligence or the effective amount of intelligence, well, you could make a one-time payment for $10,000 for a robot that could do a fair amount of tasks that you would normally pay a person to do. Uh, maybe you'd pay a person $80,000, right? I mean, the numbers are relatively arbitrary, but I think the scales are what matter, right? Um, you, you could pay a robot to do something that a person does for a much cheaper price. And then as time goes on, the complexity of the task that you can give that robot will increase, maybe eventually to the point, the complexity of the task is actually larger than what you could ask a person to do, right? Because maybe you can make a robot stronger and instead of needing, you know, 10 people to lift something, you need one, right? Or, you know, you can just, the kind of ways, the tools that you have to make things happen kind of fundamentally change. And then, you know, anytime you're able to kind of reach a 10X like that, uh, new things are possible
0: that weren't possible before, right? Which is what's really interesting. Incredible. All right. So news time. I know you pay close attention. What catches your attention? What's I think there's a
1: really interesting uh, ongoing case that's kind of part of a larger big question in AI. And that's the New York Times suing OpenAI for using their articles, you know, quote unquote, millions of articles as training data to train GPT-4. And the argument that New York Times is making is that... You know, we, we put a lot of work in to write all these articles. We monetize, you know, we create a lot of value with those articles and we capture that, that, that value with a paywall on our website, right? Well, if someone can go get that same information from GPT-4, well, then they can circumvent that paywall on our website and get that information from GPT-4 because GPT-4 can basically recite it word for word. Now, what's interesting to me is that I would argue that by definition, news is only valuable when it's new. Um, you know, it's almost like in the word. So there's kind of a a misunderstanding that I think the New York Times may have, or, you know, the people that wrote that, you know, the New York Times may have, you know, OpenAI is trained up till April, 2023 right now. So GPT-4 has information up to April, 2023. So, So it doesn't have information of news after April, 2023. So I think the kind of argument that they're trying to make is a little bit weakened by that kind of, that one thing. Now, these models, again, kind of like we talked about earlier, do have access to tools, right? So GPT-4 can, you know, go onto the web and then go and read the new New York Times articles and, and then tell you that information, which actually does kind of undermine the value that they, you know, claim to create with the paywall or with the articles that they write and they capture with the paywall. So, but that's kind of more of just like a feature, you know, OpenAI could very easily take web scraping out or just say that web scraping, you know, you you can't go to URLs that have New York Times in them, Right. Uh, Or, or, you know, you can't go to these subset of URLs. And then what they'll do and what they've already done is go make deals with another news company to be able to go use their news as that kind of source news for to answer questions um, and they'll pay for it. Right. But, but I think this is kind of coming a part of a larger trend that, um, you know, we can even see with Apple offering, you know, I think $50 million for any publishing company to be able to offer them all of the works that they've published to train a language model on. So, you know, if the New York Times is successful in suing OpenAI, I think the biggest losers will not be the big companies like Apple and OpenAI. OpenAI will just pay for it next time they have enough money, they, they probably generate, you know, they're probably close to generating a billion dollars in revenue a month. So I would say that it's actually going to hurt open source more than anything, right? So, so that's the one worry I have. And I, I'm generally pro open source, I, I, not generally, I, I'm absolutely pro open source. I think uh, that's a pretty important thing to have for a number of reasons. But um, yeah, so, so that'll be pretty interesting. And, and I think it kind of comes, you know, asks this major question of uh, how do we think about copywriting and how do we think about owning an idea? And, you know, it kind of makes us ask this question about ourselves. Is like, well, is any idea that we have completely untied to any other idea that anyone else has? Right. And, you know, if you have a new idea, what's to say that you didn't use a bunch of other people's ideas to build on top of to build your own new idea? right? And then what is the kind of point where that no longer is your idea and is actually just some unique combination of of other ideas? And and I think it's asking that big question because that's what AI does, right? I mean, it takes the entire internet and it compresses it down into you know some trillion of weights in GPT-4's case, right? And then it's able to kind of recite the information in some capacity or do some sort of new combination or superposition of these ideas to kind of give you something that may or may not be unique, but oftentimes is relatively unique. So... Again, you know, kind of back to the core theme that AI is making us ask a lot of very fundamental questions about what we thought was very much true and that we are kind of maybe now realizing that we need a uh, maybe more fine grained understanding of. Um, but yeah, so it'll be wow. interesting to see how it
0: plays out. A new story was everywhere. I, um, one comment or thing that, yeah, it was, it's not my idea. Some other ideas that I took that I'm now, you know, kind of claiming as my building off as my own idea is how, uh. Grok is going to be a big winner from it because inherent in what Grok is, is that it builds off, you know, it learns off of X's data of users and all of it's like news and, you know, what's happening today. And, you know, so they're going to be able to leverage that. And people that are like telling the news on X, I mean, they they know that they're getting distribution or whatever, you know, but it's part of the deal and could benefit Grok a lot.
1: I think one of the things that we're seeing is network effects go a long way in the world of AI, and that's you know what you see with X is like uh, you know because everyone uses it, everyone has to use it. And I think the same will be true for most successful companies in the next you know ten to twenty years is that they have a network effect because if you don't have a network effect, for the same reason that a single individual can now do something that it would used to take 10,000 people to do, if your differentiator is just that we've worked on it longer, that's going to become less and less valuable. What is going to become more? Because it's always going to be easier to do something that you did before. And now we're reaching the point that it becomes so easy that almost anybody can do it or, or you know, increasingly approaching that limit. Right. So, yeah, I think that's kind of a part of a larger trend that, you know, network effects are important and uh, they create a lot of value that it's hard to, you know, recreate without them. As opposed to some sort of, you know, like uh, we worked on this for longer, so you can't build it. Like uh, maybe I hate to call it names, but like uh, you know, in sales, maybe in a lot of SaaS companies' cases, I won't, you know, name any specifically, but in a lot of SaaS companies, what they have is is a software without a network effect, right? And if you don't have that, someone will be able to recreate that exact same software, maybe even in a way that's even better serves them because it's more personalized because they have AI agents that are doing it they'll be able to create that software in a cheaper way than, you know, using your product or or they'll be able to sell that software in a cheaper way than, you know, selling, you know, yeah. selling your product. Right. So I think that's one of the big things that I've realized that is really important is to have a network effect in some capacity.
0: Yep. I'm right there with you. And, you know, one of our personal network effects is just amount of followers we have and people paying yep. attention to exactly. us and, and so that's what the content machine is about. And that's what I'm going to, you know, I've been working for two and a half years behind the scenes, helping other people with their content machines, but I'm trying to do it for myself now and the projects I care about. And, you know, also looking for more clients that I can help and, you know, kind of, I'm doing a three separate things now, and I might add a fourth in here too. And I, you've given me a lot of confidence that with the, all this new technology, I can make it happen. But, um, The core thing is, you know, the good future media, our media agency that we help podcasters, people with long form content, get the short clips out and get them across platforms in a timely manner, in a continuous manner, and, you know, build up following for them and brand awareness and everything like that. So... Yeah, so I'm right there with you that you know it's like you need you know and as you as like the CEO of a company it's like you got to be able to come on a podcast and
1: how are we gonna yeah how are we gonna build a valuable yeah, company yeah yeah oh yeah no that that too right there's a lot of value in, you know coming on a podcast you get a lot of distribution on right
0: um, yeah or, or you know, putting well, an ad I'm, on a podcast, so you got a lot of distribution mm-hmm. on and I just feel like you know another reason I've done this podcast is when my dad was like how are you going to be able to trust anything in the future? You don't know if it's AI or not. And, you know, it's going to be all this disinformation and stuff. It's like, yeah, well, it's still the faces like people. And like, you know, that blue check Mark and like profiles that have been social media profiles that have been, you know, been around for years and have built this trust with their audience. And that, you know, when they say something, you know that they mean it and that, you know, this is a real person. And so that I'm kind of compelling people. Like you got to just get used to just, Hey, put yourself out there. What are you scared of? Like, just represent yourself. It's, we're all living these like doppelganger lives online. And it's not, of course, you know, if somebody sees a one minute clip of you or something, that's not who you are. It's just who you are representing yourself to be for a minute at a time, you know?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's a great point. I I think, uh, you know, some sort of proof of personhood and proof of being a human is going to be really important. And one of the things that I hadn't thought about until you just mentioned it is by kind of having a following that you've built over time from the maybe pre-AI stage, right? That's kind of a proof of personhood in its own, right? If you got a blue, and you know, blue check mark is kind of proof of personhood in some capacity, but like, yeah, mm-hmm. if you just have a lot of people that followed you from before AI was like really a thing that you had to worry about, like whether something was an AI or not, like, well, there's probably a pretty good chance that you're a real person because yeah, you, you know, people well, even you.
0: even now, like you know, starting starting a new social media profile today, and it's like if you're trying to use AI to write all your content and be your brand or whatever, mm-hmm. it's not going to you know resonate with people. You know, it's like it, you've got you you to you've got to have that heart,
1: right? If you if you could go get that same information from an AI for completely free and exactly how you want it, then nobody's going to follow you, right? Um, but if you add new information, that in itself is almost like a proof of personhood, because you know t- today I think. uh, ai is a fundamentally interpolative like tool today right like uh, it's just a what we already know kind of thing mm-hmm. and you can kind of you know there's all sorts of stuff like deep fun search paper where yeah can create new things but that's a that's a factor of that's a result of iteration and testing against mm-hmm. uh, you know, a known objective but anyways uh, yeah i think that's a
0: all right on. alex alex you're an ai expert what are the three ai tools that you use every day that you love oh, to man. use
1: uh, GPT four, I think is just the best catch all. I think it will continue to be at least for the foreseeable future as they add more, you know, tooling capabilities to it. That's what they're going for. I think that's what they're trying to build. I think if you don't already have a chat GPT plus account or whatever their premium version of their account is called, uh, you should definitely get one and you should definitely start using it and try things that you don't think are going to work. Cause I think oftentimes you'll be surprised that they do. So that's number one. I think as, as an engineer, um, I really like Cursor. Cursor is an IDE. It's very similar to VS Code in terms of how it feels, but it has you know a lot of AI tools integrated with it. Um, a lot of which are incredibly useful. Um, I think that's probably made you know how fast I can build something much faster. That's another one that I've most recently really been a fan of. And then I think outside of that, I can't say that I use any other AI tools outside of my own. I do think that my own is pretty exciting to use, but that's uh, more of like a uh, I kind of have to use it even if I didn't like it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um am yeah, sure I, I you're
0: iterating on that every day and, you know, in there. Yeah, I'll send it to you it. too.
1: I, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts. Um, you know, we're, we're yeah. you know, yeah. We just sent out to about you know 30 investors just to get an initial, uh, idea nice. you know without any issues but um you know then we'll, then we'll I'd, you know. I'd be happy to yeah well that that's what that's what we're building for man we're building for the people that you know normally wouldn't have access to the deals and opportunities and you know agents and information that normally an institution would only have access to or, or a you know a massive investor a massive private capital investor you know we're trying to kind of bring that information to any investor by kind of alleviating the scaling problems that stop a broker mm-hmm. from doing that today mm-hmm. and that's, that's what we're building and that's what we want to do
0: All right, Alex. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Imagine AI podcast. And I hope to have you on again soon.
1: Absolutely, man. Wonderful talking as always. And yeah, I look forward to talking more and getting on and seeing this grow too. I think it's going to be something pretty special. So looking forward to it. Thank you, man. Every
0: day. That's what I'm promising myself still.
1: I feel you, man. All right.
0: (laughs) I feel you. Talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye.